3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers, and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past and present of the Kulin Nations. We recognize their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis, and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7 a.m. to 8.30 a.m. Good morning, listeners. You are on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM with me, Priya, and I'm here with Inez and Spike. Good morning, Spike. Good morning, Inez. Morning. Good morning. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm going okay. How are both of you? Yeah, I think uh, no shy about it. I think a lot of us are feeling a strong sense of collective grief. But, um, you know, we went to the Solidarity Rally um, yesterday, which was really moving. And there was incredible, incredible speakers. And it was such an honor to share that space. And, yeah, being in solidarity with others and finding joy in community is kind of the best that we can do right now. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Good point. And I think, as I was saying to you guys earlier, I think the way that we receive information, we receive it in isolation mm. and all these like constant crises, it's it's really destabilising. I find it really destabilising. And so, yeah, I think, as Inez says, like being able to come t- together with other people to sort of process it, I think is a really positive thing yeah absolutely and i think it's only like in collective struggle that we're going to find liberation for all 100 um speaking of we have a packed show today where we're going to be talking about that in a couple of different ways so spike do you want to kick it off yeah, so we'll play the final 10 minutes of a conversa- of a three-part conversation with climate activist James from Block 8 Australia. Again, Block 8 Australia is an organising network established in response to Australia's political and economic systems and others like it globally who are facilitating the collapse of ecosystems that support all human and non-human life. Last week we learnt from James that direct, uh, direct action is synonymous with Block 8. Um, Look, they're basically questions about, um, I asked him about, now I'm getting lost here. I asked him about, you know, what Blockade's mission was, who their actions targeted at, um, what are the main obstacles to achieving a socially just, uh, economically and socially just world. Um, and what was the last thing I asked him? Um, and how he feels about this was this was the contentious question. How did they? How does he feel about using social media, mm. especially like Instagram, to promote activism? And and this will be the first thing you hear when we turn that on. Is I have a real problem with that. Not only because I think it fetishizing fetishizes activism. Yeah. And it doesn't give you the full picture of the planning and the amount of work that goes in. I understand that it's a good way of sharing. This is happening on this day, but what you, you can't do, and it's not you can't do this stuff by yourself. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. I'm really excited to hear this yeah. conversation. So thank you, Spike. No worries. And then we will be joined by Scott Drummond, who is program manager at VADA, the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, which is the peak for Victorian AOD treatment sector. And he's here to chat about the recent statements supported by 77 health and community agencies, which highlight the dire need for a drug checking and enhanced public alert system to be implemented in Victoria. It was actually signed on Monday, the 23rd of October in collaboration with RMIT. 
And then we'll be joined by Anne Wilson, um, uh, who is the CEO of Emerge Australia, the leading national patient organization for ME slash CFS in Australia. Emerge Australia works to drive policy change and is committed to ensuring that the needs and concerns of Australia's living with ME, CFS and long COVID are heard and addressed. Emerge Australia is currently recruiting people with post-infection diseases to join collaborative research efforts with universities to find a cure for complex illnesses. And I guess uh, just looking back like approximately a month ago, um, the state government announced its policy to, demo- to demolish all 44 public housing towers in uh, Melbourne, the leasing of the public land to developers and the rebuild, apparently, of, of social housing that they say will add 10% more apartments. This would lead to major lis- dislocation for the lives of up to 10,000 people from marginalised communities who, who learnt about the life-changing pol- about the life-changing policy change only 24 hours prior to the announcement when a letter was shoved underneath their door. There's so much I want to say about this, but to discuss the successful passing of a Mary Beck Council motion to oppose the demolition, we'll be speaking to Socialist Alliance activist and councillor for the Mary Beck Council, Sue Bolton. Awesome. And... Uh, finally, we are going to be joined by Jamal Nabulsi, sibling of Muhib Nabulsi, who joined us a couple of weeks ago. And Jamal is a diaspora Palestinian writer and scholar living on unceded Jagra and Terrible country. Jamal is going to be speaking with us about his writing on Palestinian sovereignty and indigeneity. And this conversation builds on some of his published work, which situates these political claims about Palestinian identity in relation to the present, uh, the present genocidal siege of Gaza by Israel and exploring the importance of Palestinian scholar activism and the long history of solidarity between Palestinians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. So really excited to bring you these rich and important conversations today. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855am. Kafias are Palestinian scarves and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. Buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafias, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organisations. From the traditional black and white kafia to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Wear your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S A 3CR supporter. These are the news headlines for Thursday the 26th of October. Gaza's health authority says more than 700 Palestinians were killed in a 24-hour period of Israeli bombings in one of the deadliest attacks on civilians in the past two weeks. Doctors in Gaza say patients arriving at hospitals are showing signs of disease caused by overcrowding and poor sanitation, with more than 1.4 million people fleeing from their homes to temporary shelters under Israel's heaviest ever bombardment. The UN has pleaded for civilians to be protected, voicing concern about international humanitarian law 
violations and pleading for emergency aid to be allowed into Gaza, saying more than 20 times the current aid deliveries are needed. In response, Israel's ambassador to the UN called for the resignation of the UN Secretary General. In Melbourne or Nam, thousands of protesters again took to to the streets for the second consecutive week calling for an end to Israel's occupation, blockade and apartheid. 15,000 people attended the pro-Palestinian rally in Nam last Sunday and more solidarity rallies are expected through the week and over the coming weekend. Elsewhere, 100,000 people marched in support of Palestinians in London on the weekend, but in Germany, France, Hungary and Austria, pro-Palestinian marches have been banned in what human rights groups say is a concerning repression of the right to protest. Uh, In other news, First Nations school children are being targeted by racist bullying after the referendum no result. A Senate hearing has been told. Bunaba woman and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner June Oscar said the voice referendum failure is being interpreted as a rejection of First Nations people and said the vote and the backlash shows it's almost impossible to have reasonable and safe public discussions. The Commissioner said the voice results highlights the need for a Makarata Commission to undergo a truth-telling process but the Prime Minister has refused to restate commitment to truth-telling and treaty in the wake of the referendum defeat. And finally in headlines, with a warning that this headline contains mention of a First Nations person who has died. It has been alleged an officer on duty at Western Australia's Unit 18 Juvenile Detention Centre was asleep when 16-year-old Cleveland Dodd took his own life earlier this month. The Western Australian Department of Justice confirmed a staff member has been suspended pending the outcome of an internal inquiry, which is also looking at the time it took guards to check on the teenager after concerns were raised for his welfare. Following his death, Amnesty International Australia said that Western Australian Premier and Corrective Services Minister ignored repeated warnings that the children incarcerated at Unit 18 experience, quote, intolerable levels of distress, putting their safety at risk, end quote. There have been at least 20 attempted suicides at Unit 18 since detainees from the notorious Banksia Hill Youth Detention Centre began being housed at the facility in mid-2022. I know that was a distressing headline, so for First Nations listeners in particular, if you want to speak to anybody about this and also about the racist backlash of the referendum and uh, what has come in its wake, please know that you can always reach out and speak to someone on 13YARN. So that is 139276 and really encourage people to call uh, if they need to have a chat. And for uh, everybody else, you can always call Lifeline on 131114. That's 131114. These have been the news headlines for Thursday, the 26th of October, and you're listening to 3CR. Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war, stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. 
We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. Last week we heard the second instalment of a three-part conversation I've had with climate activist James from Block 8. And last week he told us that direct action is planned to physically impede um, the workings of, a, um, of you know, extraction processes and industrial sort of polluters. Um, that the major obstacles to achieving an environmentally and socially just world, especially are the corruption of information and the public's distrust of the media these days, and also the systemic control of the media by corporate sort of Australia, I guess, or international sort of the in corporate world. Um, and he also said something really interesting that the public has like a catastrophe fatigue or they're, they're traumatised, which I thought was an incredibly insightful thing for a young person to say, to tell you the truth. I thought that was a really, yeah, really amazing thing that um, James said. Um, and James also, um, and uh, the, where we didn't agree was um, on the, the uh, I guess, the efficacy or the use of uh, social media and activism. I have, I have, like I said earlier, I have a bit of a problem because I think it fetishizes um, collective action in a way that makes it individualizes the issue and sort of takes away from the group, the collective work. But I, 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 I accept that it's an effective way to share information. Um, so in the last part of our conversation, you'll hear me talking about how I disagree <laughs> with the use of. Um, social media, um, the impact that direct action has on the individual and what, uh, and so the last thing was, sorry, yeah, what, how, how does James envisage, envisage a socially and environmentally just, just world, environmentally just world? Thanks. Yeah, that's just, I, I think I find that a really interesting part of the, con you know, the connection between action and how that's interpreted by the community and, you know, like the whole messaging thing. It's, yeah. it's an, I just think it's an interesting, that's why I asked. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it is. I haven't thought much about it being um, kind of fetishized in that way. There's a lot of stuff on the media about um, sponsoring um, starving children in Africa. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes it, it sort of contributes to the individualization of the problem. Like you can fix this by yourself mm -hmm. when actually mm -hmm. it's, it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's the negative I see sometimes yeah. of when I think if the people that were involved in promoting on social media also, if I guess it's hard to remember all the time, but how much work goes into planning? Because another question I'd like to ask you, how much of a personal toll does it take to commit to sort of an 11 day process? or mobilization yeah definitely yeah i mean that's why we you know you reach out to your communities um for support and hope that yeah there is uh, like support from all kind of directions like anyone that can you know give you a place to stay or lend you stuff or kind of yeah figure out yeah things like some appointments that you need to cancel or something and um, financial help and stuff like yeah it's definitely it needs a lot of planning um, and yeah I guess it needs a lot of kind of networking and commitment and yeah relationship building and kind of yeah it's ongoing it's, it's not just yeah it's ongoing kind of 
work that you need to prep for. Um, and yeah, I guess, you know, asking other people to do that as well. Um, but, you know, in some sense, that is what people then, like, will prioritize their time for. Um, and because they do find that that is, like, you know, people go on holidays and stuff as well. People go away. And, yeah, being able to kind of create a space that feels as, like, important and effective as, like, you know, for people to, like, take time off and prepare for. Um, and then they come and, you know, have a really good time. Then, um, yeah, that's, like, a really really kind of leaping step in, in being able to change and oppose the, the dominant culture and stuff. So, yeah, it's hard work, but, yeah, it's what it is. <laughs> I, I, guess, I guess it's about making a commitment to social justice and social change, making that, embedding that into your life, I guess. Totally. All right, mate, one more question. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time, by the way. In your opinion, what does an environmentally just, an environmentally and socially just world look like? What would it look like? Um, yeah, socially, politically. Um, yeah, it's quite hard to explain. Um, I guess you know, firstly, the way that we see the world today was not designed and philosophized to this extent when people first started to live under capital um so uh, yeah yeah maybe i don't know um and that's like fine um but yeah i guess like definitely being able to kind of yeah not have the domination of those things i was speaking about before like not you know not having i guess have yeah having free free housing you know a roof over your head and food and stuff is not um they're the basic needs that we continually have to like scrap for and, and kind of stretch for every single day and it's not impossible for those to just be part of a world that you like grow up in there's like apparently like 70 square meters of like room with a roof per person in australia that that's how many houses already exist you don't you know um yeah kind of having like a lot of community, I guess, where maybe your values change slightly so that you're, you're kind of benefiting off having that kind of communal social support around you, um, yeah, rather than having kind of your individualistic kind of wealthy lifestyle. Um, and I guess, yeah, you know, p potentially like with the, the right amount of education and, like, shift in, like, values, you actually don't need um, police anymore because people tend to, like, do things um, because of their previous circumstances and trauma um, and, like, having kind of a community where you're more, like, um, socially accountable and stuff, actually, and, and educated about, like, you know, what the impacts of that are um, then yet yeah, you're very less likely to kind of um, do things that may harm other people and things. Yeah, I'm not sure, you know, thinking about maybe the, the future generations kind of as like something that's part of our culture that can't just like be kind of overridden with dollars or something. Yeah, um, things like that, I guess, contributing kind of. It sounds like yeah. a, a more of a collective approach rather than an individual approach to doing yeah, things totally. and, and reproducing yeah. our lives. Mm. 
Yeah, and just maybe being able to kind of spread and share the resources at hand um, throughout the community, throughout the world, really, to a point where there's this, no one is, you know, basking in billions of dollars and other people are starving at the same time. Um, because, like, I guess the, yeah, there's this, that would, you know, that, that could be, like, a, too ridiculous for people to conceive that it's also not possible because, yeah. We've, we've been educated and kind of thought about things in a different way where, yeah, you don't need to kind of dominate other people and exploit other people to be able to kind of find your your, your self-worth in this world or something. So, yeah, I guess it's a long process and a lot lots of um, lots of more discussions on that. But, yeah, you know, primarily opposing what is currently happening is um, a very good step forward, I think. Yeah, anything that's coming up that we need to know about or you want to promote? And how yeah. can people support Block 8 Australia? Um, so Block 8 Australia has a website, um, just www.block8australia.com. Um, and, yeah, there's a, you, can, you can support by... I mean, you can always support by donating money, but I guess ultimately support by coming and chatting to people in your local area and, yeah, doing those... Um, some workshops or things people put on um, and, yeah, I guess organising in your community. You know, organising organizing anything local in your, in your community that, um, yeah, promotes a different kind of culture is supporting um, Blockade Australia, I guess, because it's building and growing um, community, which um, is, yeah, the way that we can survive outside of the system. Um, but, yeah, blockadeaustralia.com, have a look around there. Um, I guess I was just going to say in... November and December, there's a few kind of um, actions happening up in the Mullumbimba and Gadigal countries, which is Newcastle and Sydney. Um, before also, I think there's a spring or some rebellion down in um, Vic. But yeah, so there's an, there's an idea. Um, there's a rising tide blockade on November 24th till the 27th. Um, that's three days at the Newcastle Coalport again, um, not with Blockade Australia, but with, um, yeah, another crew. And then after that, just shortly after, there is um, a climate cop-out period of all-in kind of disruptive climate action happening in Sydney. Um, that's from the about the 1st till the 3rd of December. Um, and, yeah, it's a kind of get-together of um, different climate groups collaborating on, yeah, uh, just kind of um, disruption um, you know, do what you what you can and want to. Um, together, we can kind of emphasise our actions um, and potentially, yeah, be really disruptive. Turn that into something that is really um, accessible as well. Um, and yeah, so that's then. Yep, that's called Climate Cop Out um, and kind of a project that's being worked on at the moment. Thanks so much. We had Rising Tide on our on Thursday breakfast a couple of weeks ago. They they were doing a speaking tour to promote it um, at Trades Hall. So yeah, that was awesome. All right, mate. Thanks again for your time and all the best, man. Like good on you guys. Go ahead, Spike. Oh, sorry. I was daydreaming. Morning dreaming. So that was the last of our three-part conversation with James from Blockade, the climate activist from um, Blockade Australia. Yeah, where we talked about, um, wow, what do we talk about? <laughs> you we, were talking we, we're about. We were talking about um, 
so what what are the costs? What are the some of the sacrifices and the costs mm. to direct action to the actual activists, um, and how he envisages a socially and environmentally environmentally just world, and how we can support blockade into the future. So I eventually got it. Incredible. <laughs> Thanks. And um, I guess also speaking of the uh, supporting the work of organizations, I know that. Overland Journal has uh, explicitly expressed its support um, of the people of Palestine uh, for justice for Palestinians. And um, so their subscriber drive is coming up in November. And uh, here's a little bit about how you can support. Since 1954, Overland has been home to local and international literature, nonfiction and cutting edge poetry. Overland Journal's subscriber drive is on from November the 3rd. Anyone who takes out an annual subscription between November the 3rd to the 10th will go on the draw to win heaps of prizes, receive four issues of Overland, and be supporting vital Australian literary culture. Overland Journal in print quarterly and online weekly. Head to overland.org.au to subscribe today. Overland Journal is a 3CR supporter. Three CR is about community, and we welcome your participation at the station. Three CR is open to a wide diversity of volunteers, and is a great way to connect with Melbourne's activist community. Have you ever thought about volunteering, doing a reception shift, getting a program on air, training in radio skills, or contributing to one of the station's committees? There are many ways to be involved at Three CR. To find out more, go to threecr.org.au and get in touch. And we're back on Thursday morning breakfast. Inez, take it away. Thanks, Priya. And uh, now we'll be joined by Scott Drummond, who is the program manager of VADA, or the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, which is the peak body for Victorian AOD treatment sectors here in Victoria. And uh, he's here to chat about the recent statements supported by 77 health and community agencies, which highlight the dire need for a drug checking and enhanced public alert system to be implemented in Victoria. Good morning, Scott. Good morning. How are you? I'm lovely. Thanks so much for asking. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Pleasure. Yeah, so I wanted to start off with the letter that was a statement that was signed on Monday the 23rd. Um, so VADA and RMIT released a statement with 77 health agencies saying we need a drug checking service, we need a public alert system implemented in Victoria. Could you tell us firstly what a drug checking service is, what it can look like and why it's so important? Sure. Um, okay, so there are a number of models. Uh, there are fixed site models, which are in a set location, through to pop-up drug checking services and mobile drug checking services. So they're not just located at festivals, although that's an important setting for drug checking, uh, given that festivals are a place or a space where people will use drugs. I know, for example, in New Zealand, they have at least seven, maybe eight different models of drug checking services where they've legislated drug checking in that country. And as you say, 28 countries around the world. Uh, so how they work, it's a confidential service. So people who use the service won't be asked for ID. Uh, an individual will attend the, the setting or the site. They'll sign a waiver that states that they understand the limitations of drug 
testing, and importantly, that no drug consumption is safe. So staff and health service staff at those sites will point that out, and that'll be included in the waiver. They'll then provide a small sample of their drugs, and that is scientifically tested. Uh, and that can be tested in as quick as 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, but may take longer, depending on the substance and the testing method being used. Uh, the sample is then destroyed by the testing site. Uh, there's no sample returned to those that are bringing their samples in. And the results of uh, the drugs that are being tested, the composition and the purity, uh, are provided back to the individual or back to the client. Yeah, now, to your it... other question, sorry, go on. Inez. No, 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 you go on, Scott. So just, just quickly, why they are important. Well, we know that there have been uh, an increase in overdose deaths uh, and hospitalisations as a result of uh, what we call novel psychoactive substances or synthetic drugs. Uh, and in Victoria alone in 1718, I think we saw two or three deaths, and that's gone up to uh, over 40, 47 in fact, in 21-22. So there's an urgent need for this. But beyond the deaths, Let's also think about and hold in mind hospitalisations. And occasionally and tragically, there are some large hospitalisation events where, say, at a festival, a group of people may have taken the same drug and all end up in uh, you know, a lot of trouble. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important to note that there are so many different models of drug checking um, and that, yes, it's definitely a, a preventative measure and it can be at festivals. But as you said, it's also about hospitalization. And if there's like a cluster of people that take um, a similar drug that maybe wasn't alerted or people aren't sure what it is. And I think speaking particularly to that point and the increase in the like the fatality or in the synthetic drug drugs that we've seen in here in Mel in Victoria. Um, I know that the Coroner's Court of Victoria has done investigations into the, the deaths of unintended consumption of novel psychiatric psychoactive substances like synthetic drugs and consumption of unexpectedly strong substances. So we have synthetic drugs, unexpectedly strong substances, and in each investigation, the Coroner's Court has recommended the implementation of a drug checking service. So could you tell us more about why the coroner's court keep recommending this and, yeah, especially in relation to synthetic drugs? Sure. So each uh, coronial investigation is, and the recommendations that flow from an investigation is up to the individual coroner. But they investigate, broadly, they investigate sudden, unexpected and unnatural deaths to work out the circumstances and the cause of death. And in some cases, we'll make recommendations. Uh, and they'll also, the other thing that they'll do is um, have a focus on public safety to prevent future deaths. And we know there's been five uh, Victorian coronial recommendations. Now, in relation to novel psychoactive substances, <clears throat> it's, uh, what we've seen is a, is a real explosion in uh, novel psychoactive substances or synthetic drugs. Uh, so the uh, UN Office of Drugs and Crime uh, have recorded over a thousand uh, synthetic drugs in recent years. So they've they've really exploded. And there's uh, there's two things that you point out. One, they're typically more powerful, and two, there's more unknowns in these drugs for people who acquire them. 
And synthetic drugs can present significant risk to those who choose to use them. And the example I would give you, if you think about you know, synthetic drugs versus naturally occurring drugs, mm-hmm. um, we can think about opioids, um, which are powerful pain relievers, uh, morphine, heroin and fentanyl and so on. Morphine is the naturally occurring drug in that context. It, um, if you synthesize it, you can create heroin, which is a semi-synthetic drug, and then right through to fentanyl, which is totally synthetic, but far more powerful. So fentanyl and other synthetic drugs mimic um, the effect of uh, the original naturally occurring drugs, but then far more dangerous typically. Yeah, I think especially about, you know, when substances are stronger than expected, um, mm-hmm. a early warning system um, that's available to everybody is really helpful at identifying what is coming in and kind of can be like the first thing that people will look at. So I'm also wondering, you know, we're calling for like a public early warning system. What does that actually look like? Is it a text? Is it online? Um, And how would this help reduce harms? Uh, So it can be both. And you make a really good point because it's not just about drug checking for the individual who brings in their drugs to a service or a site. Uh, And the benefits there are clearly to them and maybe their friends. But an early warning system uh, increases the benefits across communities and groups uh, more broadly who may be thinking about using drugs and going to festivals uh, or whatever it happens to be. And we know that there are at least 28 jurisdictions across the globe that run drug checking and public alert systems and there may be some variance in how that works exactly but typically to be in a digital format so that you might be uh, getting a text you um, will be able to see some of these things online via particular sites um, and they're really quite effective because they can disseminate information about a substance that has been identified as being highly hazardous across populations who may be at risk. Yep, and I think, you know, we see that there's drug alerts um, and particularly an early warning system is so helpful. And Mm. as you said, like, it's good for the individual, maybe for a group, but collectively for a community, it's life-saving potentially. Um, And the one thing I also, I think I always bring it back to, we have a lot of, well, I personally <laughs> bring on a lot of people who talk about or in the alcohol and other drug sector because I work in it too and I feel really passionately about it. But one thing that ke- I keep coming back to is stigma because um, we have, as you've mentioned, there's 28 countries that have drug checking, early warning systems. We've spoken to Karma about their drug checking service in ACT. Queensland is set to launch one in 2024. So even with its evidence base, it's so strong, it's clearly life-saving. Why is there so much pushback when these services occur? Like, it seems to be stigma. Is a public concern? Like, what are your thoughts around that? Well, it's a really good question and a, and a complex question, I think. And you're right um, to, to point out some of those things about stigma and public concern. So a couple of things I'd say, firstly... It's a, it's, it's public concern is a curious phenomenon because, that, because surveys indicate, uh, multiple surveys indicate that within Australia you've got between 56, even up to 63% of the population supporting drug checking. And then there'll be a proportion that are a bit more ambivalent uh, and then a smaller proportion again that oppose it. But broadly, the public accept and support drug checking. So then we have to think about, well, what's the barrier here and why aren't we embracing this, given its effectiveness? And I think that does go to stigma a little bit. 
Uh, the other thing I think uh, that gets caught up here or, or that we could point to here in relation to drug checking and other similar things is what's called a moral panic. And it goes back to uh, Stanley Cohen, who was a criminologist and sociologist in the 70s, who identified that, uh, particularly in relation to drugs and other things in that space, <clears throat> Uh, that the media, in, in fact, can overreact to an aspect of behaviour uh, which may be seen as a challenge to existing social norms, that there's something that threatens the values or interests of a community or a society. And if I can go a little bit off track, yeah, I, used to, I used to work in the Victorian prison system and uh, 10 years ago we introduced Commonwealth into prisons uh, and that's a harm reduction uh, initiative to reduce harm among uh, prisoners who are choosing to have sex in prisons. The same arguments were rolled out then in opposing that initiative. That is that it's going to lead to uh, rampant sex within prisons. And we know that this doesn't um, uh, bear out in terms of the evidence. It's the same argument that was pointed out. And so I think we can think about it in terms of a concern that it's going to lead to uh, and condone and promote uh, uh, drug use. The evidence doesn't doesn't support that, uh, but nonetheless, I think there is a legitimate public concern, and I don't want to minimise that. Drug use will attract public concern. Drug use presents risks, and we have to accept that. So there's some legitimate public concern, but I think it's... Um, uh, it can be countered by the arguments that we make, and the evidence is that drug checking reduces risks and saves lives. And so I think through making the argument, through having conversations in as like that we're having today, I think over time we can make the case and uh, and get this done. Yeah, I think I think that's a important point. Um, I think so much of it is also in how you ask the question. Like if someone says, do you support drug checking? Um, and maybe people don't know what it is or are unsure and maybe there's a stigma attached to it. But then if you break it down further, you ask the question in a different way and you say, do you support people having healthy lives or do you support making sure that people are safe um, when they engage in other coping devices like even though it's not directly that question when we boil down to it I would like to hope that most people would want people to be safe and secure and I know that like when something is criminalized or when there's a suggestion of some sort of like moral failing or something to be part of that group um so much of it just comes down to like how we ask that question and it's so easy to stigmatise others when we don't see that they look like us or we don't know stories about that and we only see the extremes. Um, so, yeah, I think that's definitely like an important part of the conversation as well. You're right. And, uh, yeah, another thing was in our previous conversations we've had about drug checking, um, there's sometimes can be a desire maybe on the other end of the public where the service is like uh, they think it's a catch-all where you know other supports might also be needed so I guess we know that drug checking makes people um, you know makes people safer but what are some things that a drug checking service can't do? Uh, yeah so you're right there are some limitations to this and in the drug and alcohol treatment space there's very few um, interventions or um, uh, services that are going to 
solve the problem. I mean, one that's that's extraordinarily effective that I could point to is naloxone, which which is a a drug that uh, reverses rather the effects of an overdose. But that's one of the few interventions that really is highly effective. So there's no uh, response here that's going to be 100% effective. So it's important to know that drug checking services reduce risk, they do save lives, they um, provide information, they provide advice. There's also health service staff that can offer referrals to other services. Um, But drug checking services have some limitations. So they won't be able to assess all drugs. There are some organic compounds that they won't be able to assess exactly. Uh, They won't tell you that drug use is safe. They will reduce risks and harms and save lives, but it's not a total solution. Uh, So it's important to hold that in mind. We think they're an important part of the response, a really important and urgent part of the response, but they're not a total solution. And I think sometimes people highlight this and say, well, they're not going to be totally effective. To that we'd say, well, you're right, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't be doing this. Absolutely. It is one part of the puzzle, just like lots of health and allied health services are, um, like hospitals are with ambulances and social workers and everyone works a little bit together. And I think that's kind of how it comes on today. Um, And we know that, you know, 77 organizations have signed up for a call on this for drug checking early warning system. What can listeners do to help and support this? Well, that's a great question, and, and we really appreciate the question as well. So we would encourage uh, folks that are listening to uh, reach out, for example, to their local MP and highlight the benefits of drug checking. Uh, they could also contact or uh, write to their local media. So we've done a little bit of media lately. There's been a campaign on this topic, uh, as you pointed out, with our open letter to the Victorian government, which was signed by 77 agency services and associations, and and they include some uh, national associations, so the Royal Australian College of General Practitioners, for example, a pharmacy guild, uh, through to uh, emergency services, so the Ambulance Union of Victoria. Mm -hmm. So if, for example, your listeners are following any of those services or there's any conversations on social media on these topics, by all means, like them, amplify them, uh, make contact uh, with the media and those channels uh, and have conversations with family and friends on the topic. Um, Because the more I think we can talk about this, the more we can uh, counter misinformation, the more we can explain how these um, services work, uh, the better. Yeah, amazing. Thank you so much, Scott. Um, Thank you so much for joining us here today. We have run out of time, but, you know, it's really important to highlight that drug checking saves lives. Public early warning systems are really important and they all work part of the puzzle um, that help, yeah, help the community. So thanks so much for taking time out of your morning, Scott. Thank you for your interest. Thanks, Scott. Bye. And that was Scott Drummond, the Program Manager of the Victorian Alcohol and Drug Association, which is the peak for the Victorian AOD treatment sector. And they chatted about the recent statement with RMIT, um, supported by 77 health and community agencies that highlight a dire need for a drug checking and enhanced public alert system to be implemented in Victoria.
rising tide invites you to join the People's Blockade of the world's largest coal port from November 24 to 27 at Mullabimba, Newcastle. One percent of global emissions are from coal shipped through the port. We are in a climate crisis. It can't continue. Thousands of people will gather to demand no new coal and an end to coal exports by 2030 and alternative secure jobs for coal workers. Get on the water or chill out on the beach with live music and more. Register your interest at risingtide.org.au forward slash blockade and we'll get in touch with you. Rising Tide is a 3CR supporter. Wildlife Victoria is a non-profit wildlife emergency response service dedicated to helping wildlife in need across Victoria. Our volunteers rescue and rehabilitate sick, injured and orphaned wildlife. If you see wildlife that may need our help, on the road, in your backyard or in the bush, please contact us immediately on 84007300. That's 84007300. To donate or to become a volunteer, visit wildlifevictoria.org.au a 3CR supporter. And we are back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. It is 7.45 in the morning. And we are now joined by Anne Wilson, CEO of Emerge Australia, the leading national patient organisation for MECFS in Australia. Emerge Australia works to drive policy change and is committed to ensuring that the needs and concerns of Australians living with MECFS and long COVID are heard and addressed. And Emerge Australia is currently recruiting people with post-infection diseases to join collaborative research efforts with universities to find a cure for complex illnesses. Good morning, Anne. Good morning, and thank you for having me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we uh, we started covering uh, COVID and, and long COVID from a disability justice perspective from early in the pandemic. So it's really um, it's really good to be continuing this thread and looking at uh, what a, a research base on uh, post-infectious diseases uh, can can do to improve the quality of life of, of the many people that are living with these kinds of illnesses. So could you start by giving us a bit of background on Emerge Australia and its multifaceted services in patient support, as well as the research uh, that is happening at the moment through the Oz, ME Registry and Biobank? Sure. So Emerge Australia is the national patient organisation for people with ME-CFS and long COVID. Uh, We deliver a range of services across clinical education, largely for GPs. Uh, biomedical research, which is where the Oz ME registry uh, comes in, and we have a biobank where we collect blood from people with MECFS. Um, we also uh, do uh, a lot in the area of telehealth. We have uh, patient support services and information services via telehealth. We also have a social worker that works with us. So we've got nurses and a social worker currently delivering patient support information and some training on how to better manage your MECFS and long COVID. And we obviously also do advocacy around um, 
access to the NDIS and uh, disability support for people with MECFS, as well as advocacy on a range of issues that would support both patients and carers. Yeah, brilliant. And I mean, with MECFS and um, and also with long COVID, I think MECFS has has a much longer history. But both um, both I guess um, profiles have really been amplified by the work of patient advocates. It's been it's been people that. Uh, you know, have lived experiences of MECFS and long COVID that have been the ones that are raising the alarm, even when the academic community and, you know, the public health research um, is still playing catch up about these issues. And so, I mean, can't, um, can't overstate the importance of lived experience uh, advocacy in this place, to, in, in this uh, space, rather, to, to get this off the ground. So for listeners who aren't familiar, can you break down some of the indicators of ME or myalgic encephalomyelitis and CFS, chronic fatigue syndrome, and their relationship to long COVID? Sure. So myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, which is known as ME-CFS for short, is really a very complex and disabling disease that affects many parts of the body. So that is including the brain and muscles, as well as the digestive system, the immune system, cardiac systems, among others. So ME has been classified as a neurological disease by the World Health Organization since 1969. So it's been around for quite a long time. The relationship uh, between MECFS and long COVID, um, whilst still being researched scientifically, um, is very close in that the symptoms that someone with long COVID will get are very similar to those, and if not identical, in um, the uh, non-acute phases to those of people with MECFS. So, for example... Uh, people with MECFS suffer largely from unrelenting chronic fatigue. Now, this isn't just a normal uh, fatigue. This is a, a, a fatigue that is persistent, it's profound, and it really stops people in their tracks. And for, you know, uh, the 25% of people with MECFS, um, they are, in fact, house-bound or bed-bound. Mm. So, you know, it, it's not just a standard fatigue of getting tired. When we say unrelenting, we, if you compare it to the, um, uh, the life of a battery, um, if you're firing on all four cylinders and you're fine, your battery for energy levels is actually pretty full. But when you get really, really tired to be at the end of the day, you, your your battery charge will drop to maybe, you know, 30% uh, or whatever, uh, around that, that um, percentage. When you go to sleep at night, you get rest and you wake up in the morning and for most people, if you're reasonably fit and healthy, your battery charge will go up to around 80, 90, maybe 100%. For people who suffer from MECFS, when they wake up in the morning, sometimes they have less energy than when they went to bed with the night before. And unless they rest, unless they take 
very rigorously, their energy levels may not rise for a day, a week. For some people, their energy levels just don't go up at all a lot. That is unrelenting fatigue. So um, a central feature of MECFS is post-exertional malaise, where the symptoms get worse after both physical or and or mental activity. And that causes severe fluctuations in a person's health. Mm. What they may be able to do one day, they may not be able to do the next. And what triggers PEM for one person won't necessarily trigger PEM for another. So PEM is a, a significant feature of post-exertional malaise, as it is, in fact, for people with long COVID. And so whilst science hasn't yet delivered for us whether long COVID and MECFS are, in fact, one and the same, we're getting very close, uh, what we do know is that the impact of someone having long COVID and the impact of someone having um, MECFS is identical. The impact on their quality of life, the impact on um, their economic status, on their ability to work, ability to function uh, at pre-illness levels is virtually identical. Yeah. And I mean... I think something, unfortunately, that we have seen be pretty identical um, across MECFS and long COVID is uh, the fact that people living with these uh, with these illnesses uh, are being subject to so much disbelief, and that's something that so many suffering complex chronic and or post-infection illnesses are familiar with. So could you speak um, a little bit to the phenomena of disbelief in the current diagnostic process uh, for both MECFS and long COVID and um, what patients or advocates can do and have been doing to resist this? Sure. This is a really important point um, because, you know, there is no cure. We don't have a pharmacological treatment whilst there are certain things that hurt that um, helps some people, um, most doctors uh, don't really know how to manage or diagnose, let alone treat people with MECFS. And long COVID is in that same bucket. So what happens when a person goes to their GP with this range of symptoms that when um, the GP does a standard array of or battery of, of blood tests, etc., will likely come back looking normal. The GP doesn't have anything to work with, you know. It's not as if they can say, take this drug or I'll write this prescription out. So what often happens is, and, you know, 75% of people with MECFS are women, and, and patients are often left to feel that their doctor doesn't actually believe that this is something real because it's actually not showing up on any test. And so people with MECFS and now long COVID are feeling pretty gaslit by their their clinical practitioners and um, they're made to feel that, you know, maybe this is something that, you know, is not as real as you think, um, 
you know, this might be more akin to a mental health issue. Um, Why don't we prescribe cognitive behavioural therapy for you Mm. and that'll fix you? Um, So rather than looking at cognitive behavioural therapy as being something that is very helpful for people to deal with the grief and the loss and the anxiety caused by a disease for which we've got no known cure and no known treatment, um, patients are sort of being told, well, you know, the reason you're feeling like this is because you've got a mental health problem that will be fixed by cognitive behavioural therapy, which is absolutely untrue. The other thing that happens with patients is that uh, there is the theory that MECFS is is really, um, and prolonged MECFS and long COVID is the result of deconditioning. Because you've not been able to do much, you've got low energy levels, you've maybe been in bed for a very long time, therefore we need to fix you by giving you um, graded exercise therapy. So graded exercise therapy is that you start, the, the, the theory is that the deconditioning of the body um, needs to be fixed by slowly upping the um, amount of energy that you exert and doing some exercise on a regular basis that keeps increasing. And as a result of that, you will get fitter and your MECFS will go away because, after all, it's not caused by anything that we know. Yeah, so I mean, it's... Patients, it's... Are made, patients are made to feel that what they're experiencing isn't real and can be just fixed very easily. And, and that's what we talk about when we talk about patients being gaslit, not believed, um, uh, stigmatised mm. as having a mental health issue and just, you know, completely invalidating their experience. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, um, it's super disheartening and just, you know, it, incredibly invalidating of people's experiences to then have to put in... Uh, when dealing with chronic fatigue, to then have to put in so much labor to self-advocate. Now, um, unfortunately, we're coming up to time. So just before we wrap up, could you tell us a little bit about uh, the current recruitment uh, by OzME Registry and Biobank for participants for MECFS and long COVID studies? And how can people contribute to this? Sure. So the Australian MECFS and long COVID registry, now known as OzME, is an online study of individuals aged um, 12 years and above who have MECFS and or long COVID, as well as healthy volunteers. And that data um, will uh, create, is a a valuable and comprehensive resource that um, contributes to further knowledge and um, experience expanding our knowledge about MECFS and long COVID, making a really meaningful difference to the lives of those affected by these conditions. We also run a biobank, so uh, uh, participants have the option to voluntarily contribute blood samples for further research. Mm. These blood samples are matched with registry data and can significantly enhance our understanding of both MECFS and, and long COVID, which of course 
we hope will um, help with with more precise research and treatment and hopefully help us lead to a biomarker or a test, let alone a cure for ME-CFS. So the way yeah. people can, um, can find out more about the registry is to uh, hop on to the Emerge Australia website, and, which is www.emerge.org.au and go on to the OSME registry for details how to join and how to help us make a difference. Wonderful. And we'll have all of those details in our show notes. And thank you so much for making the time. Thank you very much. And that was Anne Wilson, who's the CEO of Emerge Australia, the leading national patient organization for MECFS in the country. And Emerge Australia works to drive policy change, and it's committed to ensuring that the needs and concerns of Australians living with MECFS and long COVID are heard and addressed. Emerge Australia is currently recruiting people with post-infection diseases to join collaborative research efforts with universities to find a cure for complex illnesses. So once again, we'll have all the information about how you can contribute to that if eligible in our show notes. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. Have you heard it on the news About this fascist growth thing Evil men with racist views Spreading all across the land They're pulling on the boots in Brazil and wiping off the eggshells in Moorabbin. Fascism's on the march and we say, yeah, nah. Yena Passaran is a new weekly program on 3CR dedicated to tracking this rise in Australia, Aotearoa and all around our increasingly warm little globe. Every Thursday at 4.30pm, we'll be talking to writers and fighters about some angry blighters. I'm Jeffrey. I'm Alphonse. I'm Erwin. And we, we are, are from, from the, the Voice of West Papua. Tuesday, 6.30 until 7.30 p.m. News and music from West Papua. Okay. Um, successive um, state governments have left housing to the to the free market, while simultaneous, simultaneously peddling the notion of housing shortage and crisis. And this has played into the hands of developers, landlords, community service corps, and real estate agents. Um, and now, and just recently, we've heard the um, the state government's plan to abolish all forty four towers. In this, in in Nam, Melbourne, um, and the dislocation of over ten thousand lives, and the people who are least able to deal with that sort of thing. Um, I heard recently that Sue Bolton, the um, the Socialist Alliance um, councillor for Marybeth Council, opposed um, uh, passed a motion to oppose um, the the demolition in the. Um, in Mary Beck Council, and we have we got her here this morning to talk to us. Morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going, Spike? Um, it's well, it's going okay. Look, I'm really, I'm really keen to get into this. So, 
what what does the the uh, your opposite what the the uh, motion consist of? Um, when was it passed, and what does this mean for people that live in public in the public housing towers? Well, it, the motion was passed uh, last Wednesday. In fact, there were two motions which were passed, which opposed the public housing demolition. Um, but the motion I put, so one of them was just a straight, you know, we condemn it, we note, note all the problems, etc. Um, and that was good. I supported that motion as well. But I also uh, moved an extra motion, which is basically, you know, calling on the government to abandon the policy of demolishing the public housing towers and instead use the retain, repair and reinvest model, which is being used in France already, where public housing towers are being renovated without tenants being forced to move out. Um, It also talked about, uh, called on the government to stop using this ground lease model to privatise public housing land and also to adopt a position that any developments on public housing estates be for public housing exclusively. And the last thing was that Meribek take a motion or or seek support from the Municipal Association of Victoria to oppose the demolition of the public housing towers and instead support plans for the retain, repair and reinvest model. Um, so the Municipal Housing Associ- Municipal Association of Victoria, the MAV, is, um, is an organisation that brings together all local councils. And so we really need... And so if we get a motion through that, it actually is a bit influential. It doesn't force the government to back down, but it is a bit influential because... That would mean, a num- like all of the councils or most of the majority of councils opposing what the government's doing with demolishing the towers. But we do, we would need support of other councils. So I'm actually hoping that some other councils pass motions condemning, like opposing the abolition of the public housing towers and supporting the retain, repair and reinvest model. Okay. And only one councillor was opposed, actually. Everyone voted for it except for one councillor. Well, that's that's a positive that's a positive thing. I, I guess the other thing that I'm really interested. So, what does what does the plan outline? What what's going to happen to these people if it, if it's successful? What does that mean for the people that are currently living in pub, in the towers right now? You mean if my motion leads to and the campaign leads to success? Or no, do you mean if, it, if, if it's unsuccessful. If what? it's unsuccessful. If it's unsuccessful, it will people will be dispersed all over Melbourne and the experience so far from talking to people in the Sydneyese community that I know, people who were re- relocated out of Flemington Estate uh, during COVID or just after COVID, um, and they were attracted when they were told you'll be relocated to this lovely, nice, new sort of housing. And people thought, well, OK, this would be nice. But they were relocated to suburbs way past Truganina and Tani, yeah. so much even further out west than the outer western suburbs. And there's no bulk billing GP, no public, serv- no public transport, very few... Uh, very limited access to schools and childcare. And whereas at Flemington Estate, people had access 
to all of those things, like a uh, community health centre where things were free, etc. Yeah. And some of those people actually want to come back now, but they can't. And so I think this will be this will be really disastrous. Plus, people experience the fact that they're totally isolated because there's no one else in their community that lives in that area. Yeah. And that fits with the research done by some RMIT academics who found that um, forcible relocation takes years off people's lives. Yeah. And that's what I've seen with um, Grand Place in West Brunswick when under the old, uh, in 2018, the state government forcibly relocated people out of 11 um, estates, uh, three-storey walk-up estates, including West Brunswick under the public housing renewal program. And like some of those people, they got relocated and they lost contact with their community because Grown Place was a community where people supported each other and they lost that social support. So I guess, um, what does that mean for, for um, public housing, the in authentic public housing, 25% of your income, having control of your space for the rest of your life? What does that say? Like, is it, does it spell the end? Like, if this is successful? I think, um, I think this, if the government is successful with demolishing the towers and forcing everyone out, I actually am pessimistic that it is like the end of public housing or or even much reduced, even more reduced public housing than we've got already. Um, So I think our campaign to stop the demolition of the towers and go in a different route to refurbish the towers while people are still living in the towers, I think is really important fight. And we've got to... um, combat all of the government's arguments as to why they're doing this. And also, I think some public housing tenants in the towers uh, think at the moment that there's no alternative other than just accepting being moved out. Um, And they don't realise necessarily that there is another way. And there's no evidence that there's anything structurally unsound with the towers. I suspect there's nothing structurally unsound. It is possible for the towers to be refurbished. There might be one or two that maybe are structurally unsound. We've got no idea because we've seen no independent information. But it is important for us to fight to save the towers. Yeah, for sure. Um, And that means not just people in the towers doing that fighting. It means people outside of the towers doing the fighting. Uh, so, are you surprised by the lack of clarity and in this in the in their proposal in the state government's proposal, or uh, is it just is it just that this is part of the plan to to push, um, you know, marginalised communities out of the city and get access to what to public land? Is the, I, I, yeah, does that make any uh, sense? That question. Yeah, are you no, surprised? no, no. I, I do, I'm not surprised about the lack of clarity because the way they've privatised public housing in Australia, which is based on how they privatise council housing in the UK. We've done it the same way in Australia as they did in Britain. It's all been um, using semantics and nice words to disguise what they're doing, like using the term social housing to apply for housing association housing and public housing. So no one knows what's happening. So I'm not surprised about that. But I do think this is really all about 
giving developers access to um, public land in the inner city and pushing... It's a social engineering thing of pushing poor and black and brown people out of the inner city, away from services, off to the outskirts, and allowing developers to make a big buck out of inner city estates. And if you think the inner city estates, it's a substantial amount of land because unlike private apartment blocks, you know, in the past, public the public housing towers were built with a lot of green space around them. Yeah. Um, and so they're, you know, a lot easier on the eye. They're sort of, you know, a green, like it is, even for the local residents who live near near the towers but not are not in public housing. So, so, sorry, to, sorry we're just space. running out of time. Are there, are there any campaigns that people can get behind? Um, yeah, can you just update us on any campaigns that are well, happening or rallies that people can get behind to support the, the, the push to oppose the demolition? Well, there's a, a Save Public Housing Collective, which is having a meeting this Saturday at 2pm at the East Melbourne Library. And there's going to be a National Day of Action for Housing, um, which in Melbourne will absolutely take up the question of saving the public housing towers, and that will be um, on the International Human Rights Day weekend of 9th and 10th. Yeah. Um, we're just working out the date, but that will be an alliance of everybody, um, and and that will probably be in the CBD but we want every, everybody to be involved. Thanks so much, Sue. Look, I'm sorry about the time. We'll definitely have another conversation if that's okay. And thanks no, for making good. it. All good. Thanks for making the time to come on this morning. Thanks, Spike. No worries. Bye-bye. That was Sue Bolton, the Socialist Alliance um, councillor from Marybeck, who um, successfully, with her colleague, passed a motion to oppose the demolition of the 44 public housing towers in uh, Melbourne. And so, yeah, if you if you hear of any sort of rally or any campaign to oppose the demolition of uh, and the theft of public land, please get behind it. You're- Stand in solidarity with Palestine this Sunday. With the most devastating attack ever launched on the people of Gaza, it's time for all of us to stand in solidarity with the Palestinian people. Israel has waged war on the Palestinians for the last 75 years. The Nakba, ethnic cleansing, occupation of the West Bank, East Jerusalem and Gaza. Israel has now imposed a total blockade on Gaza and declared war stopping food, electricity and fuel and launching an all-out attack. We have to mobilise to show our support for Palestine. 12pm, State Library, this Sunday. Rally to demand freedom and justice for Palestine. No war on Gaza. Free Palestine Melbourne is a 3CR supporter. back on Thursday morning breakfast on 3CR 855 AM. And uh, for our final interview today, we are joined by Jamal Nabulsi, a diaspora Palestinian writer and scholar living on unceded Jagra and Turbal country. And Jamal joins us to speak about his writing on Palestinian sovereignty and indigeneity. 
This conversation builds on some of Jamal's published work situating these political claims about Palestinian identity in relation to the present genocidal siege of Gaza by Israel and exploring the importance of Palestinian scholar activism and the long history of solidarity between Palestinians and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. Good morning, Jamal. Morning. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, of course. Um, thank you for making the time. I know uh, the immense toll that this is taking on Palestinians in the diaspora to, um, you know, to decide to engage with with media requests. So I really appreciate it. Um, so two of the central terms that you've taken up in your own writing and thinking about Palestine are indigeneity and sovereignty. And I know that listeners in so-called Australia will have a particular understanding of these terms in relation to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. But I was hoping that maybe we could start off um, with you unpacking those terms in relation to their application to Palestinian selfhood and political identity, maybe beginning with the complexities of thinking with that term sovereignty. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, thanks so much for the um, the amazing question. So I think um, we often, um, when we hear the term sovereignty, we often um, understand it as um, state sovereignty, um, So, which is, uh, you know, basically the the exercise of um, of force within defined borders, and fundamentally, what state sovereignty is about is um, is uh, is performing. It, it's performative. It's something that uh, the legitimacy of the state is performed through um, acts of violence on um, on different forms of bodies, uh, and uh, in the settler state, uh, that takes. More specifically, uh, uh, most prominently, the form of uh, eliminating indigenous bodies from the land, um, and that elimination can take uh, a whole host of different forms. Um, and so, in some sense, uh, indigenous sovereignty, at least uh, as I understand it, uh, is is a kind of uh, a, a reclaiming of this term sovereignty, is to say that when settlers came here um, and began establishing this. Um, this state sovereignty in settler colonies, um, they, uh, you know, ignored, erased, uh, attempted to extinguish the sovereignty, the, you know, the existing political uh, claim uh, of the Indigenous peoples uh, on, of the land. Um, so that's here also in Palestine. Um, and so I guess in thinking about a Palestinian Indigenous sovereignty, um, I try to like I take inspiration from, um, yeah, some of this existing theorizing from uh, indigenous peoples, primarily from here, um, and and think about what that means in the context of Palestine. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, one I think important thing to clarify, uh, moving on to the term indigeneity, mm-hmm. uh, in terms of Palestinian indigeneity, um, is uh, I, I think we often think about indigeneity as a question of like. Uh, who who was here first? Um, but uh, for me, it's really not about that um, at all. I think that's a kind of uh, I don't know. It's a kind of pointless question, um, and it, it it leads into all kinds of um, yeah, like concerning places and arguments when you talk about it uh, in the context of Palestine. So I think about indigeneity uh, instead as a it's a political relationship to the structure of settler colonialism. Mm. And so uh, essentially we have uh, Israel, a settler colonial state, 
uh, that is attempting to eliminate Palestinians from their land. Uh, and again, that takes a whole range of different um, different forms. Um, and Palestinians are indigenous to the land um, insofar as, um, you know, they are struggling to remain on the land that, um, you know, they've lived on for generations and generations. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, I mean... I've really appreciated the way that your writing has explored this, and I'm and I'm wondering as well if you could kind of um, touch on how indigeneity as well, you know, forms a counterpoint to the fragmentation of Palestinians in the West Bank, Gaza, and the diaspora, where um, you know there's this forcible removal and physical distancing of um, you know various parts of the broader Palestinian community. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I spoke a little bit about just then about um, about elimination, about the settler colonial project. So in this case, the Israeli settler colonial project, um, its key goal being to eliminate Palestinians from their land. Um, and one of the key ways that um, Israel attempts to do that is by fragmenting Palestinians. Um, it's kind of a variation of the sort of you know, divide and conquer um, strategy, I guess. Um, so, uh, and that fragmentation also, it takes a, you know, a whole range of different forms. But so one of the most sort of fundamental, I guess, is that in 1948, when, um, you know, Israel, when uh, Zionist colonizers uh, established the state of Israel um, by expelling uh, almost one million Palestinians um, from their land, um, they, they basically... Uh, there was a kind of founding division of the Palestinian community. So one million Palestinians uh, expelled from their land, um, So, uh, and and the state of Israel established with um, only Gaza and the West Bank um, as two separated uh, kind of remaining Palestinian territories. Um, and so... Yeah, there was a there was a sort of founding fragmentation between uh, Palestinians who were expelled into exile as refugees um, to neighbouring countries, and you know others have eventually made their way to to elsewhere, including here. Um, for example, uh, my family. Um, you have Palestinians in the West Bank, um, and you have Palestinians in Gaza, um, who were uh, you know obviously um, the focus uh, at the moment, given the genocidal, um, you know, bombardment, uh, invasion of Gaza. Um, and you also have Palestinians who live inside the state of Israel as, um, as you know, citizens of, uh, of Israel, essentially. They carry, they reluctantly carry Israeli uh, passports um, mm. because essentially they managed to remain after 1948 um, and, you know, after some time of... Um, of uh, basically living under military orders, uh, they were sort of reluctantly given uh, the Israeli passport. Mm. Um, so you have these very different, um, you have these very incredibly different kind of uh, realities for different groups of uh, Palestinians, um, which is created by this, um, yeah, created by colonization. Um, and but even within those, Israel has really worked to kind of fragment Palestinian communities. Um, and, you know, I can't go into so much detail about all the forms that this takes, but it's, it's things like um, dividing Palestinians according to their uh, religious or ethnic um, identities. Uh, because, 
you know, there's Palestine has always been a place um, with a whole. It, it's a place that's incredibly important to multiple religions, um, and it's always had uh, a wide range of um, of ethnic groups as well. Um, and so, one of the key ways that Israel attempts to fragment the Palestinian people is by um, kind of yeah, is by basically driving divisions between these communities. Mm. Um, and so, I think. Yeah, indig- to get back to uh, indigeneity or a Palestinian indigeneity and a Palestinian indigenous sovereignty, I think one of the really powerful things about this idea is that it can bring these communities, these different sort of divisions that have been created uh, in the broader Palestinian community um, together by saying uh, we all share this one thing, which is that uh, we all belong uh, with the land of Palestine, essentially. Um mm. And we are all subject to uh, the elimination that Israel is trying to uh, pursue. Yeah. I mean, I was going to ask you uh, a question about the the importance of Palestinian scholar activism and how it relates to this liberatory decolonial praxis and and theory of change. But, I mean, you've sort of just summed it up there um, already. So I was hoping that maybe we could finish off by returning to the question of where we both are, which is on the stolen lands of First Nations whose sovereignties have likewise never been ceded, myself in Narm and you in Minjin. Um, can you speak to the power and potential of Indigenous solidarities and what those relations have looked like for you? Yeah, um, yeah, great question. Um, so I think the, I think one thing that we have to understand is we often... Um, we often view, uh, you know, different colonies in isolation, um, but I think we we need to understand that um, settler colonialism is is a global structure um, and it has different nodes. But these different settler colonies actually prop one another up. Um, so, you know, the the Israeli settler colony. Um, I think it's, in some sense, it's actually quite unsurprising, although it's incredibly shocking to see the Australian government sort of basically, uh, you know, openly greenlighting genocide, uh, Israeli genocide in Gaza right now. Uh, In some sense, it's also unsurprising because, uh, you know, uh, Australia recognises that um, that it's, uh, you know, its existence as a settler colony is also tied in with that of uh, that of Israel. Um, And it has its you know, Australia has its own genocides to answer for. Mm. Um, so I think one of the really important, uh, one of the powerful things about Indigenous sovereignty is drawing connections uh, across these different contexts um, and essentially, um, you know, resisting colonisation uh, from where we are and, um, and, you know, where we basically face it, where we're best placed to uh, resist it. Because, like, for me, um, like, uh, resisting, engaging in activism for Palestine from here essentially includes, um, you know, uh, engaging in activism for First Nations sovereignty here as well. Um, because of these connections that I've spoken about, um, you, you just can't have one without the other, basically. Yeah, and I mean, we saw such a powerful example of that um, on the streets of Narm last night, where, uh, you know, uh, warriors of the Aboriginal resistance in Free Palestine, Melbourne, held a beautiful rally of solidarity, um, holding that shared rage and grief and, um, you know, 
ultimately making a, a public commitment, a recommitment to solidarity and resistance, um, you know, in, in the wake of the tragic uh, death in custody of young Cleveland Dodd in uh, Western Australia and you know, t- tying all of that in in a cross-border form of solidarity between two colonized peoples to look at the situation in occupied Gaza. And um, I think, you know, I've, I just really appreciate you making the time to talk about this today and was wondering if you had any final thoughts you want to share before we wrap up. Um, I just want to plug uh, an, an event that we have coming up on the 7th of November. Um, so it's a, this is for uh, people in Mianjin or who will be in Mianjin on the 7th, uh, I guess. Um, although it will be, it won't be live streamed, but it will be recorded and um, distributed later. Uh, but it's a symposium on Black Palestinian solidarity. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it includes... Um, uh, Angela Davis, who will who will be uh, in town, she'll be speaking. Um, someone with a long history um, in relation to, uh, I guess, broader Black Palestinian solidarity. Um, so Angela Davis speaking. Chelsea Wadigo, uh Uncle Lionel Fogarty will be sharing a poem about Palestine, um, and we have several other um, uh, speakers as well. Amy McGuire, Bospiram, Raham Sharida. Um, so yeah, it should be a really uh, amazing. Um, symposium and night um, and yeah so definitely and you know for anyone recognize that you know most people listening probably won't be uh, in Mianjin uh, on the 7th but uh, yeah it will be recorded so keep an eye out for it Um, yeah it should be a really special conversation so um, yeah thanks so much for having me yeah absolutely and we'll have all of that info in our show notes and I know uh, that it's it's going to coincide with the time that the Sisters Inside conference is happening so there might there might well be a lot of our listeners heading up for that, um, but we'll have all of that information um, on our site after this. Jamal, thank you again so much for making the time this morning. It was a pleasure to speak with you. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. And that was Jamal Nabulsi, a diaspora Palestinian writer and scholar living on unceded Jagera and Turbal country. And uh, Jamal joined us to speak about his writing on Palestinian sovereignty and indigeneity. And this conversation builds on some of Jamal's published work sitting the, situating these political claims in relation to the present genocidal siege of Gaza by Israel. You're listening to Thursday Morning Breakfast, and we will catch you next week. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop. Melbourne's independent radical bookstore and venue for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton. And while you're there, check out Radical Coffee, a worker-run cooperative cafe in the courtyard. Keep up to date with upcoming events at nibs.org.au. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.